I've wanted us to just take a look at this last night before Jesus' death. Last week we looked at chapter 13, the very beginning of his upper room discourse with the disciples, and we saw him wash the disciples' feet. And today I want us to look at his high priestly prayer. In chapter 17, this tender moment of fellowship between the Son and the Father. And in this prayer, we see what is on the Lord's heart regarding his mission and the desire for his people. To set the context, the purpose of the whole Gospel of John is summarized in chapter 20, verse 31, when John the Apostle writes that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In other words, John's purpose is to prove to us that Jesus is not just any ordinary man, but that He is the Son of God, the Lord over all things, and the only Savior of His people. And his purpose in presenting Jesus in that way is so that we will look to him and believe in him and find eternal life only in him. We can find it nowhere else. John's purpose is to point us to Christ so that we will have eternal life. And so in doing that, he spends the first 12 chapters of John giving us a selective record of Jesus' life and ministry. He gives us one piece of evidence after another that proves that Jesus is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the Son of God, the Lord of all, and the Savior of His people. And then in chapters 13 through 17, John zooms in and he focuses on one night of Jesus' life. The worst night of Jesus' life. The night before His crucifixion. In chapters 13 through 16, he has his final supper with the disciples before he is arrested. During that time and on afterward, as they move toward the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus teaches these disciples sobering and important lessons about what is about to happen. He demonstrates true love and humility, and he calls them to follow his example toward one another. He tells them that he is about to die. But then he comforts them with the promises that when he is gone, the Holy Spirit will come, that he will give them divine guidance, that he will give them divine protection, that he will make their ministry successful, and he has promised them an eternal home with him. And now in John chapter 17, Jesus turns his gaze toward heaven. And he prays. And in this prayer, he summarizes all that he has taught to his disciples throughout his ministry. He summarizes all that he has done for them. And he commits all of it to his heavenly Father. Through his earthly min though, though his earthly ministry is coming to an end, the ministry of his disciples is just beginning. And Jesus knows that. And he knows it isn't going to be easy. He cares deeply about them. And he cares not only for them, but he cares for all the believers who are going to come after him. 
throughout all generations. He is fully aware of the danger and the difficulty that his people will face as they follow him and continue on his ministry in this world. And so his prayer that he prays in their hearing is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, the heartbeat that he has for his church. And this prayer is a compelling testimony, not just of what Jesus wants to see happen, but of what he has guaranteed will happen. And it is a testimony of the trustworthiness of all that Jesus has said and promised. We're not going to get through the whole prayer today. Those of you who have heard me preach long enough, you know you already knew that. But we're going to read it all right now. And we're going to look, Lord willing, at this prayer this week and next week. So if you'll follow with me, John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is one of the most beautiful and theologically jam-packed chapters in all of Scripture. It is one of the few places where we see the content of Jesus' prayer. We know he prayed often. We know he rose early in the mornings and spent considerable time with his father alone. And that alone is a good lesson for all of us to learn about prayer. But there are just a few places where we are actually brought in to witness the prayer itself. As we see Jesus on the cross, we get a glimpse, a small glimpse of his prayer to the Father. As we see Jesus in Gethsemane, we get another small glimpse. But those are just glimpses. They're pieces. They're highlights of the prayer. Another example could be Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray by modeling for them what we call the Lord's Prayer. But that really is just a model. It's a, it's a guide. It's a guideline, a general instruction for how to pray. It shows a general rule for what our focus should be in prayer. It was a pattern, not necessarily a prescription. But here in John chapter 17, we get a fuller glimpse of Jesus praying. John 17 is not primarily a model for us like Matthew 6 is, although it is a good model. John 17 is a demonstration of prayer. And so I suppose on that level, it's safe for us to say this is the true Lord's Prayer. In this prayer, Jesus teaches by demonstration many important lessons that we all need to learn. Lessons on prayer how to pray and what to pray for, lessons on ministry in and through his disciples, lessons on his mission in the world, lessons on the life of the church, and lessons on everyday Christian life, lessons on the Christian's hope for the future, and more. How in the world... Could we possibly cover all of that today? I've already said we can't. How in the world could we possibly co cover all of that today and next week? We can't. For our purposes here today, my goal is to do a quick survey of this chapter. There is so much more we could cover, but we're going to leave it at that. This chapter is about prayer, the prayer of Jesus. And so to start, 
by way of introduction before we get into the the meat of what we're going to look at this morning. We read in verse 1 that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. What that's talking about is, it's referring back to chapters 13 through 16. After this, this heavy, somber conversation that Jesus has with his disciples about what is about to happen, After he gives them the lessons on life and ministry directly over dinner with them, when he had finished that, he lifts his eyes to heaven. He prays to the Father. And as we look at that introduction to this prayer, it gives us a moment to pause and to consider some ideas and some lessons that we can learn even about the posture of prayer here. Lifting up the eyes toward heaven was a common position of prayer at that time. And that wasn't just a Judaistic thing. That was anybody who prayed in any religion. They typically would lift their eyes. And along with the lifting of the eyes, they often lifted the hands. It was a posture of humility. It was a posture of expectancy and looking to the right place. And that might seem weird to those of us who are used to praying with folded hands and heads bowed and eyes closed. So my question is, which way is better? I mean, it should be the one that the Lord did, right? Right? But then the natural question is, well, can both of them be right? And my answer is yes. And then you're naturally going to ask, is that really the point of the passage? And my answer is, not ultimately. But there is something important, not just about the fact of praying, but how we pray and the mentality that we have when we come to prayer before the Lord. I came across not too long ago a fun poem that deals with posture in prayer, and I pass it on to you because you will find it theologically rich, maybe. The proper way for a man to pray said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the proper, the the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front, with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever prayed, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. Well, we can join our voices in the argument about the posture of prayer if we want to. The fact is, whether standing up, reaching up, looking up, kneeling down, bowing down, or some combination of it all, the pattern in Scripture is not so much focused on the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart, is it not? The posture of our bodies in prayer may be important, and it is certainly worth considering but it is where our heart is that is most important. 
And whatever the posture of his body, when we see Jesus praying in Scripture, what we see most clearly is that he prayed. Early, often, earnestly, and godly. Now again, I, I understand the primary purpose of John 17 is not to be a model of prayer, though there is much we can learn. So moving on from that, even more importantly, is that this prayer is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, of His purpose, and of His earnest desire for the good of His people. And He even prays not just for the, the 12 or, or 11 disciples there in that moment, but He prays for all who would come after them, including us today. This prayer is a sort of transition from the soon-to-be-completed ministry of Jesus on earth to the inauguration of His disciples' ministry on this earth. And it is a prayer of consecration on behalf of His people as Jesus prepares to lay His life down and they prepare to carry on that gospel ministry. So this prayer is sober in its tone. It is serious and focused, and it carries with it the importance of a man's final prayer. And as we look at the structure of it, it is laid out in three stages, three progressive stages. Think in terms of concentric circles. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then spreading out a little, you have verses 6 through 19 where he prays for the disciples who were with him right there. And then finally you have verses 20 through 26 where Jesus prays for the church at large, for all Christians throughout all generations. Now, that's not the outline we're going to follow today. That's just a helpful way of looking at the structure of the passage. But there is a lot of overlap between these points. So we need to consider here not just the structure of the chapter, but the themes. The themes of the chapter. It covers a lot. It is an affirmation of Jesus' completion of His mission, it is a confirmation of the disciples' mission. It is a promise of their success. It is a direction of focus in their mission. It is a lesson on prayer and the Christian life. And as I've prepared for this, my, my head continues to spin. There is so much here. What I want to do is simply give an overview that I hope will lift your eyes to Christ and that I hope will strengthen your faith and your commitment to the body of Christ, the church. And I pray that it would give you a hunger to come back and study this passage in more detail for yourself. And so as we break down this passage, I want us to consider four themes. We're only going to get to one of them today. The rest will come next week. But I want us to consider four themes in this passage. What Jesus is most concerned about for His church and what he wants to see in his people. Theme number one, glorification. Theme number two, preservation. Theme three, sanctification. And then theme number four, unification. Unification. We're looking this morning just at that first one, glorification. That is the foundational theme. That is the, the spring from which everything else flows. This is the one on which everything else is built. 
And Jesus begins his prayer in verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look briefly down at verse 24. He begins his prayer where every prayer should begin, with the glory of God. Only in this case, he is one with the Father, and so he's praying not just for the Father's glory, but for his glory too, because they go hand in hand. But this is where he begins. He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. What hour is he talking about? It's the moment of his death. Time has come. This is the moment he had been looking toward for his whole life. And throughout the Gospel of John to this point, we've seen a lot of references to his hour. If you look at chapters 1 through 12, but he continually says, my hour has not come. It has not come. He tells his his own mother in chapter 2, my hour has not come. He goes on in chapters 7 and 8 and says the same thing. But then in chapter 12, verse 23, as he brings his earthly ministry to a close, we read this. He says, the hour has come. What hour? It's referring to his death, but how does he describe it? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And then John mentions again in chapter 13, verse 1, that his hour had come to depart out of this world. The time has come for the Son of Man to lay down his life. But notice what he says next. His time has come. So he prays to the Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Is that what you would have expected for Jesus to say in that moment? I would have expected him to say, Father, the hour has come. Let's get on with it. Let's get this over with. Let's be done with this. But he doesn't say that. He looks at the cross And he speaks in terms of glory. He says to the Father, it's time. Glorify your Son. And what is the purpose of his glorification? He says that the Son may glorify you. In completing his divine mission, Jesus is not completing merely his earthly ambition. He is completing the mission that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have worked out from eternity past. He is accomplishing what they have all declared to do. He is completing this mission. And so not only will the Son be glorified, but the Father will be glorified. As we'll see down in verse 4, they are one. Their mission is one, and it is being completed. But what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? What does it mean? For him to have this glory. What comes to your mind when you hear the word glory? It's often something something very temporal, isn't it? The glory of winning a World Series. Do you remember who won the World Series last year? Some of you don't. It's a fading glory. It's the glory of of somebody who has accomplished everything they've set out to accomplish and receives the accolades of men. But that too is a transient glory, isn't it? It fades. I've been to retirement ceremonies for highly decorated Air Force officers, 
and they stand there in their glory with all their ribbons and their accoutrements on their uniforms and everybody is there to praise them and thank them for their service and honor them and rightly so for a, a career that has been finished well, but it's fading. These men and women will go home and they will change into their civilian clothes and go on about their lives just like the rest of us. So when we think of glory, we tend to think in terms of shiny things and bright lights and great riches and extravagant pageantry. And certainly all of that can be associated with glory, but there is so much more to it. Glory has to do with exaltation and praise. In Scripture, the word has to do with weight, heaviness. And you even see that in the light of the glory of God throughout Scripture, don't you? When the Apostle Paul is, is still Saul and he's on, his, on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus appears to him in a bright light, what does the light do? It knocks him on his face. Well, yeah, it blinds him and it knocks him on his face. It's a heavy light. It is an overwhelming light. It is something that induces fear because of the presence and character of God that is present, something that no man can stand. And so when Jesus talks about glory, he's talking in the context of John 17 in, in two aspects. There is ultimate glory that is that perfect glorification where he is exalted high above every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He speaks of that in verse 5. But he also speaks of an immediate glory, the lifting up of the Son of God on Calvary's tree. You see, both of those go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Jesus, in being lifted up at Calvary, is exalted as the Son of God and the Lord of all and the Savior of His people. And because He was successful in what He accomplished there in rising from the dead, He is exalted in heavenly glory for all of eternity. In both cases, the idea of glory means for Jesus to be lifted up and seen for who He really is. It means that people will recognize Him and worship Him as the exalted Son of God. That is our great need today. That is what we need above everything else today. We need to look at Jesus today and to see Him not as a poor man who just got a bad break or not even as just another historical figure for the history books and not even as one who who stood for something, even if it meant sacrificing everything. We need to look at Jesus today and see him as the exalted Lord of heaven and earth, who created and upholds all things by his wondrous power. Jesus prays for this in verses 1 and 5, and then he explains it in verses 2 through 4. So skipping ahead from verse 1, look at verse 5. Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus didn't come into being at his incarnation. That's when he was named Jesus. But this eternal Son of God has existed forever. 
And he's been one with the Father. He's been eternally glorified forever. And now he is praying, as it were, in this prayer, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. There is no mistaking that what Jesus says here is a claim to be the eternal God. We've already read about that. That's the point that John has been making throughout his gospel. And he starts off with it in John chapter 1. Flip over to John chapter 1 and look at the first three verses. John chapter 1, this is how he begins this gospel. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. The beginning of what? Everything. The Word already was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he takes it a step further in verse 3. All things were made through him. Who's that? The Word, the Son of God. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, in eternity past, the Son of God was exalted with God the Father. And now, according to John 17, 5, he is exalted there again, and he will be exalted there for all of eternity. He did not become God. He is not less than God. He is eternal God. And he is exalted as eternal God in heaven. Now, verses 2 through 4 give us sort of this parenthetical statement that explains further why the Son is to be glorified in this way. Why the Father will glorify Christ. And in short, Jesus Christ is glorified and lifted up and exalted in heaven because one, He is the sovereign authority over all things. Two, He is the giver of salvation and eternal life. Three, He is the Savior sent by God the Father to save His people from their sins. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the giver of eternal life. And He is not only the giver, but He's the provider because He is the Savior. He's the one who made it possible. So look at verse 2. Jesus is glorified because the Father, we read, has given Him authority over all flesh. He has given Him authority over all flesh. He is the sovereign authority over you and over me and over everyone who has ever lived. Why? Well, we already read in John 1, because you and I and everyone who has ever lived was made by Him. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and see how the Apostle Paul explains this. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, he says, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. By the way, that firstborn over all creation is not saying that He was the first one to be created. It's saying that He is in that position of prominence and glory over everything that was created. And then it goes on and says, By Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. 
And, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And verse 2 goes on to say, back in John 17, that Jesus is exalted not only because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, but also because the Father has given him authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given. So not only is he the sovereign sustainer, sovereign creator of all things, but he is the savior of sinners and is the giver of eternal life. Again, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see this eternal glory and this saving of sinners weaved together into one passage. Philippians 2, verse 6, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so truly, if this is the case, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is exalted and glorified by God the Father because He is equal with the Father. He is the Creator of all things. He is the Savior of all men. And He is the giver of eternal life. Now what does eternal life mean? Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, we need to understand that eternal life is not really about living forever. We're all going to live forever anyway. We're all going to live forever somewhere. And eternal life, frankly, is not even about streets of gold, crowns, robes, riches, mansions, or anything else like that. At the heart, eternal life is all about a relationship with God. It is about being reconciled to God. So when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, He's not just talking about an awareness of facts, heads full of knowledge and details about biblical things. The word has to do with an intimate relationship, as with a husband and a wife. Jesus did not come to die on the cross just to, to give us heads full of knowledge and give us a bunch of eternal things that we will enjoy forever. Jesus came for a greater purpose than that. If you go back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he said, Paul says this, For in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and then through Him, verse 20, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
of the blood of his cross. Jesus' mission in his earthly life and death on the cross was to make peace. Peace. What kind of peace? First, foremost, and above all, peace with God. Peace with God. You see, this is mankind's fundamental problem. You and I, by nature, are not at peace with God. We are alienated from God. We are at war with God. We are in rebellion against God because of our sin. We are, by nature, sinners. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over there if you want. This is what Paul says about those, each one of us, by nature, apart from the sovereign saving work of God in our lives through Christ. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So rebels against God, sympathetic to the influence of the evil one. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, if all of that is true, then where does the peace come from? Where does the hope come from? Where do we find deliverance from that kind of wrath? Read on. Paul says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in him, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the, immeasur the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Where does the peace come from? Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what does that peace look like? It is reconciliation to God. It is, it is to know God. It is eternal life, that, that knowing God, being reconciled to God and having peace with Him. To know God as our Heavenly Father and to know Jesus Christ as our only Savior. To follow Him as our Savior and Lord. It is only then, it is only in Him that we will find any eternal peace. It is only there that we find eternal life. But notice how Jesus describes it in John 17. This eternal life is not just a good idea. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just a great hope. And it's not even a promising possibility. It is a done deal. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? To save his people from their sins. His mission was not to offer hope and then sit back and hope that anybody came. His mission was not to provide the possibility that man would be saved if he could just 
meet him halfway or, or somehow open his own eyes to salvation and decide to do so. His mission was to save his people from their sin. And he accomplished that redemption. Yes, he is still drawing men to saving faith. And there is still much work to do to proclaim the message of the gospel to the lost. And if you are to come to saving faith, you must, dear friend, make a conscious choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can be confident with great joy that the work of redemption is done. There is nothing else you need to contribute. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. We sang that. Is that your testimony? There is no more sacrifice to be made. There are no more good works we must add in order to be saved. There is no weakness in the salvation that Jesus provides. This is a statement of eternal security. All who are in Christ are eternally secure. They will never be plucked out of our Savior's hands. That is why we have that great anthem of exaltation in Hebrews chapter 1 when he exalts Christ as the, the image of God and as the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature. And then he says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because the work was finished. And that is why we have that earth-shaking image of the resurrected and glorified Christ in Revelation 1. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. And then He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's glorified. He's exalted. He is glorified not just in our minds, but He is glorified by the Father Himself. It is finished. And now back to John 17. At the moment Jesus prays this prayer, He is a man, alone, with eleven disciples, on a dark night, about to be arrested, humiliated, tortured and then hung on a cross to die a criminal's death for all the world to see. That's where he is in John 17 as he prays this prayer. But make no mistake, that was the eternal Son of God hanging on that cross. And as he hung there, it was a divine mission that he was accomplishing. He bore the wrath of God, poured out on the sins of his people, so that he might be, so that his people might be saved, and that he might make peace between them and the Father and give them eternal life. You see, friends, for us, the cross is a glorious thing. There God provided salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, look quickly down at verse 24. And Jesus says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. You know there's a glory that's promised to all who are in Christ? It's not our glory. 
It's not a glory that's all our own. It is a participation in His. When we see Him as He is. This is part of knowing God. It is the culmination of eternal life. You coming to saving faith at your point of conversion was not the culmination of your salvation. It was, in a sense, the beginning of it, at least as far as you can see. The culmination of it is when you stand in the presence of Jesus Christ himself and you see him risen and glorified as he is. That is where you are headed if you are in Christ. Does that not change how you see the rest of this world? Does that not change how you relate to everything else that happens here? My friends, who do you perceive Jesus to be? Do you acknowledge him to be the Son of God? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord? If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I urge you now to lift your eyes to Christ. I urge you to see him for who he really is. And when you see him for who he really is, then you can acknowledge yourself for who you really are. You can see that you are a sinner who is in desperate need of salvation. But you see Jesus who has mercifully and gloriously provided it for you. And then you can accept the free gift of God's grace of salvation in Christ. Friends, I'm calling you today and urging you, repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Christians, is the glory of God your central concern? Or has something else grabbed your attention? The glory of God was Jesus' main concern, even on the night when he was staring the cross in the face. And he demonstrates it right here, beginning his prayer with an earnest plea for the glory of God. His whole life was about completing this mission and glorifying the Father. My question is to you. What is your life about? Are you being driven by the mission that Christ has given to you on this earth? Or have you gone off on a side trail somewhere? We need to meditate on the glory of Christ today. It puts all things right. We need to see His glory we need to pray that God would be glorified, and we need to pray specifically that God would be glorified in us, in our own hearts, and through us in the world. It is a prayer, like Jesus, that we would know Him and that we would make Him known. His glory must be our greatest driving pursuit in everything that we do. Let's pray.